difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Scott Tobias and Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky is currently betraying our beloved medium of film by attending the Television Critics Association press tour. She will return soon, we hope. Today, we're looking at two films about the power of art, which unites us with its beauty except for the times when it turns us into sniping, backbiting snobs, or worse and otherwise finds ways to destroy our lives. Tasha, can you lay some jive on us about what we're about to talk about? Hey, Daddy-O. For our next two episodes, we're going to pair... Funny word, pair. It works as a noun or a verb. Add a few letters and you can impair something. Add some different letters and you can repair that same thing. Change a few letters and you can eat it. So this week's pair... Guys, I can't do this. <laughs> I know I know it's like thematically appropriate to the episodes, but I can just feel listeners tuning out because it's so annoying. But Tasha, art isn't like a popularity contest, man. We've got to do the purest form of this podcast. And like, if people dig it, that's cool. If they can don't... I, can I just do this the normal way? If you're asking if you can sell out, sure, fine. Okay. For our next two episodes, we're looking at two movies about art and death, separated by 60 years, but united by some similar questions. Who is art for? What makes it great? What makes it dangerous? Both films explore these questions with no small amount of violence and black humor. The first is the 1959 film A Bucket of Blood, shot by Roger Corman, written by Charles B. Griffith, and headlined in a rare starring role by Dick Miller, playing the busboy at a beatnik coffee house, who unexpectedly and briefly becomes a darling of the art set via some unusual quote-unquote sculptures. Then in the following episode, we'll discuss Velvet Buzzsaw, the new art world satire slash horror movie directed by Dan Gilroy and starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Rene Rousseau, and John Malkovich. They play inhabitants of a high art world that's shaken by the introduction of a stash of paintings from a previously unknown artist retrieved from his apartment after his death. All that, and we promise no more faux beat poetry. Also, we should mention that unlike most pairings, this one was not our idea. Listener Rodrigo Rothschild, who tweets under the name at R-O-T-C-H, Roch, suggested it to us both because of the thematic connections and because it presented a chance to pay tribute to Miller, who recently died at the age of 90 after a long, busy career. But only one film featured him creating a sculpture called Dead Cat. We'll talk about it after the break. (laughs) The artist, the poet, the figure model, who loves to show it. You suppose he could be physically attracted to her? No, man, he ain't the type. You don't get enough vitamin E. All these are beat. All these you'll meet in a bucket of blood. Let us make the scene. Crazy. Come, enjoy yourself. <laughs> Where the hilarious enjoy the horrifying. In a bucket of blood. Now you're gonna shoot me, don't you? Come to the land of living dreams, where realists dream of the unreal. Walter, you've done something to me. 
something deep down inside of my prana. Oh, Walter, I want to be with you. You're creative. Beatniks at their bawdiest. The creative urge at its most primitive. I'm deeply moved. And I shall compose a poem. Love is art. Art is love. It's the weirdest and the wildest. The early 1950s wasn't the smartest time to get into the film business. The threat of television, a wolf at the door since its invention, was proving itself to be real and lasting. The movies that made money had to be big, expensive, and spectacular. Not the sort of thing a fledgling company had the resources to make. Or they had to be cheap and canny. Founded in 1954 by Samuel Z. Arkoff and James Nicholson, American International Pictures adopted the cheap and canny strategy. Recognizing that teens still went to movies while their parents stayed home, AIP formed focus groups to see what the kids wanted to watch. They worked from the name backwards, and when titles like I Was a Teenage Werewolf and Dragstrip Riot sparked interest, they made movies to go with them. It's a business model that worked remarkably well. But was it art? That might be the wrong question anyway. A better question, was there room for an artist to work within that kind of system? In 1959, AIP released a film that explored both questions, created by a pair of artists who learned to thrive within the financial and creative straits of the AIP system. Written by Charles B. Griffith and directed by Roger Corman, A Bucket of Blood was made cheaply, even by AIP standards, shot in five days on a budget of $50,000. The following year, Griffith and Corman would use the same sets to shoot the cult classic Little Shop of Horrors in just two days for even less money. Worth noting, the sets were already left over from the film Diary of a High School Bride. Both writer and director understood the workings of the film business. Griffith started out in the waning days of radio drama and would continue rolling with the changing B-movie marketplace through the 1980s, scripting and sometimes directing movies notable for their sly, subversive streak, including the classic dystopian action film Death Race 2000, directed by Paul Bartel. Among those who have cited him as an influence, it's Quentin Tarantino. Corman named his 1990 memoir, How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. But both Corman and Griffith also saw film as a means of artistic expression. When asked the favorite of his, of his films, Corman invariably mentions The Intruder, his 1962 movie about racial prejudice, a film that, when it didn't make as much money as Corman hoped, he reissued under the name I Hate Your Guts. With a bucket of blood, both had more free reign, but less money than usual. Corman was told only to make a horror film. Working with Griffith, he took the California beatnik scene as his milieu and found it fertile ground for a bloody satire of ascetes and posers, but also a place to explore some fundamental questions about how art works and what we value in it. Dick Miller plays Walter Paisley, a naive and deeply impressionable busboy at the Yellow Door Coffee Shop, a bohemian hotspot presided over by poet Maxwell Brock, played by Julian Burton. For Brock, art is the only thing that matters, or, put another way, life is an obscure hobo bumming a ride on the omnibus of art, a sentiment expressed once and once only because, also in his words, repetition is death. But maybe art needs a little death to feed it, too. A frustrated sculptor, Walter discovers a shortcut to artistic accomplishment after accidentally killing his landlady's cat. He then covers it in clay and submits it as the work, Dead Cat. The Yellow Door denizens coo, and Walter starts to indulge in the bad habit of turning murder into art after killing an undercover cop who thinks he's part of a drug ring. It's morally appalling, sure, but is it maybe art, too? There may be some self-reflection at the heart of the movie. Film historian David Kalett has observed, like Paisley, Corman made what he could out of the materials at hand. Corman has the soul of an artist, but has rarely earned artistic respect because of the lurid elements on which his art is dependent. The trick has been finding a way to say something within the constraints of B-movie filmmaking. 
The present tense is no accident. Corman remains active as a producer at the age of 92. Can we make a satire of the art world, package it as a horror film, and throw in enough severed heads to make sure nobody's disappointed? The kids want a story about a man with x-ray eyes? We can make money by adapting Edgar Allan Poe movies if we stay under a certain budget? Great. How much art can we squeeze from that sort of situation? If it doesn't get recognized as art, does that make it lesser in any way? We'll ponder those questions and others when we return to dig deeper into a bucket of blood. Duncan knows, Tuesday sunrise knows, alley cats and garbage cans and steaming pavements and you and I and the nude descending the staircase and all such things with souls we know that Walter Paisley is born. Ring rubber bells, beat cotton gongs, strike silken cymbals, play leathern flutes, the cats and cans, and you and I, and all such things with souls. We shall hear Walter Paisley is born, and the souls become flesh. Walter Paisley is born. Okay, guys, when we got that email from Rodrigo Rothschild, I couldn't believe I didn't think of a pairing myself. I've seen this film several times over the years, but it was the first time for both of you. How did it play? I mean, I, as, it, as it got started, I was just, I was really kind of struck by how kind of cheap and, and ridiculous it felt and how like heightened that, that first moment is where Winston is like looking into your eyes and like reciting this, this bizarre poetry. And I had, I had a few moments at the beginning where I was like sort of struggling to get into it. And then... <laughs> This movie just opened up for me. It's the the acting is really fun. Mm-hmm. Like the tone of it is really fun. It does. It is so reminiscent of the Corman Little Shop of Horrors. Like sometimes to a fault. Like way too many of the the character beats are very similar, and it doesn't have as many like like just completely crazy people coming in like Dick Miller coming in to eat flowers. But at the same time, it it really does kind of get to some interesting stuff about about the art scene and the pretensions of the art scene and and hangers on of the art scene and how little it takes to become successful at a field where everything is opinion and a lot of people are willing to take other people's opinion as as fact. I found this film really surprisingly fun and and kind of poignant by the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved it, and I loved it for this. It got me from the start because I love that opening shot uh, because you, because you do start really close on Maxwell Brock, who is a towering figure, very you know big beardy guy who's laying down a lot of the uh, poetry in the movie, and it and really is a very influential character in the movie in terms of dictating to people what they should think about art. But in any case, so you start really close on him, and then the camera pulls back, and it's just, it's very cinematic. It's just a very nice elegant shot it immediately establishes the fact that there's an artist behind the camera and Mm -hmm. not and not just somebody making a really cheap movie (laughs) because (laughs) it is it is inexpensive and very simple but i just love this movie i i'd never seen it before it sort of tied the room together for me between like (laughs) between you know you can you can kind of see connections between this and in a later corman movie like the trip um you know making the scene or impressions of the scene from the perspective of a square, really. And then, of course, you know, the, the Poe-like nature of the film, particularly the last stretch where it's a very telltale heart mm-hmm. and you're getting all of these uh, plays on his conscience, all that was really good. It's funny. I think it, it's really got some really sharp things to say about this scene that's emerging 
uh, that's full of pretentious people, but also people that were so subversive that, of course, this bar is also going to be full of vice cops and people who are ready, <laughs> re- you know, ready to, to shut the whole thing down. Um, I thought it was really smart. Um, yeah, I love how like the vice cop posing as a beatnik is it's just another example of just another poser in a, in a field of posers, you know? I mean, it's, yeah. it, you know, you just dress the part and you are are that person, at least as far as uh, the others are concerned. Yeah. Although you've, you've kind of got nerd undercover cop and cowboy undercover sure. cop, and ni- neither one of them entirely fits in. They're both, uh, they're both very narky ideas of the scene that they're inhabiting. <laughs> Yeah. Which is kind of hilarious and, you know, says as much about the straight world in this film as, uh, you know, the, the parodies of various kind of beatniks say about the beatnik world. Also in that, that first shot, the first shot is a, a great fake out, you know, because mm. because you have I called him Winston earlier. Uh, you have Maxwell like looking you in the eye and saying, let's talk about art. And you it, like it, it feels like the beginning of a documentary or it feels like the beginning of uh, like a frame story. It's it's almost Twilight Zone esque. Let's take a look at the beatnik scene and see what it has to tell us. And then and then he immediately goes into that like hobo on an omnibus thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so wacky. Fortunately, the, the internet being the wonderful thing it is, has collected a lot of these Maxwell Brock <laughs> uh, bits of poetry. But one one thing that becomes relevant in the film and repeated in the film, which is something, of course, that our hero Walter Paisley likes to do is quote things that, that Ma- Maxwell has said. But uh, I think my favorite is creation is graham crackers. Let it all crumble to feed the creator. Feed him <laughs> that he may be satisfied. <laughs> it's just like, that is so funny. I mean, the, as a metaphor, crumbled up graham crackers is such mm-hmm. a weird <laughs> metaphor. But also that notion of the artist as being this, well, larger than life and important figure, so important. And that just, that so feeds into Walter's mentality here that, that to, to, to feel that, that important uh is everything to him to where he doesn't I mean, he's, he's kind of an idiot in every other in, mm-hmm. in, in, but but the one thing he does know is that he is this is what he should be and uh he should be you know and so he's memorized everything that maxwell has said and he wants to have that kind of stature and, that, and earn, earn that kind of respect there's a real tragedy playing out just around that poetry that i find very interesting in the way it's executed in that you know maxwell says these these poetic things that sound pretentious and ridiculous and then like as far as he's concerned it's it's over and he's moved on and you have his follower kind of walking around like literally taking it as gospel reciting it to other people as gospel like reciting it to other people both to impress them and in a way that almost sounds scolding like how dare you talk about art in a way other than you know this holy writ that i've memorized and it weirdly reminded me of the way elliot roger the incel murderer who's Mm. like manifesto has been picked up and quoted by all of these very very sad lonely boys online it just the way he carries the this poem around when the person who declaimed it in the first place has already not only forgotten it but dismissed it as like not worth repeating Mm -hmm. is just so fascinating it's just it's such a concise method of character uh establishment and it's just it's really impressive in that way just like in in the space of a few beats you get here's what art is all right now we're moving on no we're not moving on we're staying here forever and and he's within that moment within those few beats like you have a whole scene right there 
I think also it's obviously a very broad parody of the beatnik scene, but it kind of makes sense for 1959 when the idea of being a beatnik had entered the mainstream and, and attracted a, a lot of tourists and posers, as you see here. I, mean, you, I like the couple that kind of comes to get their like their their beatnik uh, sherpas to, get, to to escort them <laughs> through the world of Southern California Bohemia. I mean, this is like post Maynard G. Krebs, post the, the idea of uh, the, the beatnik cliche had, had already, I think it's kind of at the last moment you, you would even be a viable thing to be a beatnik. So you, you kind of get the scene that, that is that is already kind of entered its decadent uh, phase as well. Yeah, that's a very decadent breakfast that Maxwell describes when he's asked what <laughs> the, he's what, eating. I wrote some of that down. It was like wheat germ, organic wheat germ. I don't know. It would almost like, the thing is though, it's like that's, that's something that the movie that has not really dated that much. I just, <laughs> no, the exact same uh, uh, sort of uh, precious uh, bespoke <laughs> breakfast food. Either. Are these live eggs? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, we're out of safflower oil. I had to use peanut oil. Yeah, Just, yeah. Oh yeah, the the foodieism of it is uh, is kind of adorable. So what I mean is there something specific to California here too in terms of just this scene? Would it have filtered? Yeah, pro- probably. But I would, I would tri- be a... trickled from east to west, sort of. Like yeah, I mean the, the the whole like the idea of uh, you know it's very a New York thing. I've been kind of been transplanted to the West Coast at this point. But beyond that, I couldn't really speak enough to draw suspicion authoritatively. From, uh, from the cops, right? Exactly. You're looking out for drugs. Somebody who can speak more authoritatively about beat poetry might well uh, have a lot to say about the specific kind of declaiming that we hear here. I mean, when Keith scripted out a, uh, a a beat poem for me at the beginning of the the script and was just like, you know, do this in a beat poetry kind of way. I was like, there are a lot of schools of beat poetry. You know, mm-hmm. there's the there's the drifty flowery stuff. There's, you know, Jack Kerouac's machine gun prose. There's that sort of abstract, I'm making I'm making noises and the patterns matter more than the words type thing. And I wonder how much of that was like regional and scene based and if we knew a lot more about kind of the the movements of beat poetry if that would emerge here i just wanted something that would like be a, wouldn't be out of place in like a, a sitcom from the <laughs> <laughs> like a, a pop culture filtered uh interpretation of what, what the whole beat scene was all about which is kind of what bucket of blood is as well so we talked about how it's it's funny and it's but it's also kind of creepy and scary and it goes it's more grotesque than i I actually remembered it being and certainly uh fairly explicit for a 1959 film i mean does this a mix of horror and comedy work for you does it fall more on one side than the other i think it works great i mean i I mean i I don't it's not scary really right though i mean you know he stabs a cat through the drywall Uh, (laughs) it shuts that cat sound effect record right off (laughs) yeah but i mean even if that moment did play as as tragic or horrible then he punches a hole in the wall and retrieves this like <laughs> like incredibly stiff cat puppet. Yeah. Like Rare yeah. Mortis said it instantly on that yeah. cat, huh? Yeah. I mean Dick Miller plays in that scene as if it's tragedy and the the cat carving makes it kind of comedy. And there's a lot of that I think going on in this film where mm-hmm. like almost everything around him might play as comedy. But Dick Miller plays it plays it like a tragedy and he's just the the emotion that comes off him the the desperation and the longing and the stupid stupid frustration i think is kind of fascinating because your your sympathies just veer back and forth with him so rapidly that first scene where he's trying to make the clay be a nose and he's yelling at it be a nose be a nose and he doesn't understand why he isn't talented mm-hmm. is so complicated because you can see that you know he wants something that he doesn't have the talent for but you can also see that he wants it instantaneously which is something a lot of people do 
do with art. If I'm yeah. not good at this instantly, it's not worth doing. And they assume that the people around them that are good at things were instantly good at them. Yeah. So he's making like such a common tragic mistake about art but he's also just so confused and muddled and hurt about it it's like easy to feel for him and judge him at the same time as the story goes on there's just perpetually this like oh i I really feel for this like dim bulb who sees everybody around him having something that he wants and i'm terrified of him because of the things that he does not even so much the murder uh for me is like the scene with carla where he just turns on her in an instant Mm -hmm. because he wants something and she's like i but i don't feel that way and he's just immediately furious Mm -hmm. that also has not dated one bit yeah no and and i also think that the the last uh killing with the buzzsaw is well handled the, the, the bit with the uh, you know the blonde that he brings back to his home the mix of sexuality and violence there is also handled quite well uh, but to kind of go to this idea of Walter because Walter's such an interesting character this is one thing this is another Maxwell Brock quote that I think isn't a bunch of gibberish it actually really defines him well which is he says quote Walter has a clear mind one day something will enter it feel lonely and leave again <laughs> uh, and I think that's I think that's so true I mean in terms of just how we perceive Walter there's an innocence about him but as you say also kind of a raw frustration and, and anger very childlike his actions make a lot of sense that there's never a point where you're like this guy is too sweet or something to pull this off but at the same time he's recognizably lonely and vulnerable and kind of vacant and you know he's a cipher in certain respects as well yeah um, and that poignancy i think to me brings an extra level to the movie and 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 then you know a much tip of the hat to charles griffith who, who knew what he's doing and layered stuff on top of other stuff and to use a technical term um yeah. and um i mean and it helps that also miller's performance i mean he does play it straight and it is a funny movie but also walter it is it's a tragedy as well i mean he just wants one thing out of life and he gets it and that's that's his downfall that and all the, the murders. Um, <laughs> it's mostly but, other people's yeah. downfall. But I mean, Miller's great. I mean, Miller usually gets a chance to just come in, steal a scene or two, and then and then disappear from a movie. And it's it's fun to see him at the center of it. And and you know before before the crags had set in, before he become like sort of the, the Dick Miller that that we know from yeah. from being in many 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 films, including Gremlins uh, two, which we've done on this show. Yeah, how can you not love <laughs> what he he brings to the table? Um, another moment in the film that really strikes me from a performance level is when he. Um, has dead cat and he presents it to the people outside of the club and says um, am I an artist now and yeah. like, he's so <laughs> excited you know he's so excited by the idea of being an artist that what he's done uh, the morality of it the gruesomeness of it absolutely is washed away he is <laughs> it does not weigh on him an iota like none of it does it ever weigh on him what he what no. he does to any of anyone I think it's a sort of a moment of, of what have I done after he kills the cop but I think that's kind of it yeah because I mean you know life is as important as art yeah he seems to feel like pain and regret it just doesn't it doesn't last long like like everything else it's sort of fleeting he's a very shallow person and i to some degree i don't think anything illustrates his shallowness better than the way he names his art dead cat and (laughs) murdered man like he literally cannot think deeply enough to come up with a a a name to disguise the fact that he murdered man (laughs) and covered him in clay yeah 
What was the name for the for the woman he strangles? What is it? Is, do we have does, a name for that one? Did, I don't know. Sh- no. I'm not sure he right. he named yeah. that one. And then the end they call, call him Hanging Man. Hang, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm kind of with Miller though. Miller, Miller's complaining about this movie is that he doesn't look. He doesn't. There's not enough clay on him to really like sell the effect that he's turned himself into a sculpture. Uh, yeah, shot, you know yeah. that's the the, the, that's the lack of gritty realism in this film is just really what's. <laughs> yeah, it would actually back. be less realistic if he was somehow you know artfully covered <laughs> in clay. Because how does that happen? I I did wonder if they were going to burst in there and find him having somehow covered every inch of himself in clay and yeah. then commit suicide. Well, but he has to be, in that moment. He does have to sort of hastily turn himself mm-hmm. in art. He, and clay, clay, as we see, is a, a difficult material to work with. So you, you, know, you do your best and then you hang yourself. That's how art works. <laughs> Man, it's I, it's good that they found him out early because those statues were going to get nasty. Like, you, <laughs> you, 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 the, the clay was still wet. Like, he didn't have a giant person-sized kiln. He didn't fire that stuff. It wasn't pottery. It was literally wet clay tamped around human corpses. That is true. It is possibly worth thinking about how he managed to keep murdered man upright. Or maybe we just don't want to know. Again, a gritty realism, not really what what's holding this film back. I kept having uh, Little Shop flashbacks because his performance is very much like uh, Jonathan Hayes's Seymour Krelborn. And apparently Dick Miller was offered that role hmm. and, and turned it down. Like hmm. he could have been Seymour Krelborn. He'd rather eat flowers instead. And he did. He he decided that he wanted to eat flowers instead. He thought that that would be a you know he didn't want to get typecast, I guess, as the whining schmendrick, losing control of his life while mooning over a woman more attractive than him and accidentally murdering a series of people, <laughs> including a cop, and uh, you know feeding them to this this passionate desire he has to be something better than he is. Like they're kind of the same movie, except yeah. one of them has a plant puppet. They're both good though. Oh, yeah. I mean, and they're both charming in different ways. I think Little Shop both nudges further into like surreal comedy and ends in a flatter, less interesting way Mm -hmm. than Bucket of Blood. Yeah, but they, they has, oh, what's the line in it? Like, you want to find him here among the toilets or something. I forget <laughs> what the line is. Makes this me laugh is a every tight time. film, though. There's really, oh, there's yeah. It's no, efficient. There's no, 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 and it's like, six, what, 65 minutes long? Yeah, something like that. It is, uh, it's terrific. I, you really, there's not a wasted moment in it. They um, couldn't afford it anymore. But, no. you know, but first half a double feature, that's, that's sort of the goal. Yeah, no, it? it's, it, it, I mean, I, it, it kind of makes you long for like that as a potential running time for certain movies because mm-hmm. uh, this really is tight. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, and I, I did mention just a little bit earlier, but but what we're talking about Corman's other work is that connection I see between A Bucket of Blood and The Trip, which is a movie that, mm-hmm. that Corman did eight years later about in which Peter Fonda plays uh, a guy who's gonna being led on his first LSD trip by Dennis Hopper, right? I believe it was Dennis. Is it Dennis Hopper? He's in the mix, but I don't know. Not Dennis Hopper. Uh, Bruce Dern. Yeah. Okay. Hopper's there, too. Hopper's there, but too. I think part of the problem is he doesn't really have enough of a guide. <laughs> he kind of ends up wandering around L.A., if I remember the film correctly. Yeah, well, and it's, I mean, there's all the and there's all these effects and stuff, mm-hmm. too. But, but of course, it was based, you know, Corman himself... You know, is a pretty square dude. Went through this process of himself going on an LSD trip uh, in mm-hmm. order to, to to make the the movie. And there's this kind of in the connection, I think, between that character and the Walter Paisley in this movie. And that they're kind of dorks. You know, they're they're not scenesters in any way. They don't have you know the experience or the hipness of of the people who are in that setting. But they they desire it, and they and they take some fairly dramatic 
steps to achieve it. And it's, it's interesting to think about like Corman's career in that context as somebody who's very practically oriented as a producer is in terms of making, making sure films have certain compulsory elements that they come in at a certain budget level, but then also have that impulse to, to play a little bit and to be ambitious and to move forward. And so, so you know, in that respect, both A Bucket of Blood and, and The Trip feel quite autobiographical. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it's, this personal, is personal, I should say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and there's a lot. I mean, Corbin put himself into his movies. I mean, his, his Poe movies are, are real artistic statements uh, as well. I don't, have, I don't know if you've seen any of, of oh, those. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know. They what, are relative to the Budget-wise, budget yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. for sure. But relative to, to like a big, you know, costume drama being made at the same time, not, not, not very expensive. <laughs> uh, it is, you know, you have a certain... A uh, certain zone you have to have to hit, but but, uh, but some of them were quite quite beautiful and had oh yeah, color absolutely. I mean, Nicholas Rogue did the cinematography for Mask of the Red Death, and they're very colorful, go- you know, gorgeous looking, and have like a mood all their own. I mean, Corman as a director is is really interesting. I mean, I mean, he made a lot of films that that didn't really work, but the ones that did are quite memorable. I'm really a big fan of X the Man with X Ray Eyes, uh, starring, <laughs> starring Ray Milland, which is uh, you know, it starts with that. A man with X-ray eyes uh, scenario and basically just turns into an exploration of, of of the nature of the universe. By the end of it, you know, and certainly, you know, we don't have time to get into all of it. But uh, as a producer, he just he's responsible for the start of so many careers, and, and and it was a lot of like take this premise, get it done for under a certain budget, and 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 you know, put as much as yourself you can into it. After that, so you know, I'm I'm a fan. I got to interview him a couple years ago in person, which was which was was kind of a thrill. Well, that is fun. Yeah, I wonder, like, looking at this, I, I wonder to some degree how, like, making super cheap movies ended up affecting just his filmmaking skills. Because you look at some, you look at this, The Bucket of Blood, one of the things that stood out for me is in the middle of it, in that whole sequence where he first tries to, to sculpt a face and ends up stabbing a cat, there are some really long takes in that that are almost certainly artifacts of we're shooting as quickly as we can with as little film as we can with as few takes as we can. But somewhere in the middle of that, I started laughing because it's like the long take. It's an artifact either of immense planning and coordination <laughs> and, and budget commitment or of like a super cheap film that you just you need to keep rolling as much or, as possible. Or, or both in this case. Right? I think, it, it, you know, it's sort of like he's making he's turning a restriction in, into an aesthetic choice in this case. Too. I think it has to be both because there, because I mean, you would never associate long takes with, you know, budgetary restrictions, really. I don't think I mean, just because there's so much planning involved and because one little mistake can ruin the entire take. And, th- and then what do you do? You sure. Know? I mean, but if you're talking about something like Atonement or Children of Men, where there are a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. But here you just have one actor like, like moving simple, back and forth in sure, a space. Okay. And it's it's very simple and it means there's not a lot of cutting. There's not a lot of editing. There's not a lot of moving the camera. Like I, I think that that was a budgetary decision. But then you go on to something like Mask of the Red Death, which, you know, is is stately and beautiful and also has kind of some long tracking takes. And I kind of wonder if some of that was just became a habit with him uh, or if he saw the artistic potential of some of the stuff that he was doing at a super low budget and just kind of took it into his storytelling for for better budgeted movies i like also that that he's you know he's working on a pretty restricted couple of sets here but he makes the most of them like he really kind of camera kind of glides around to that coffee shop and there's some really interesting angles in, in walter's uh uh, apartment the the kind of adds a sort of disorienting effect to to you know it makes it feel claustrophobic when he's at home um and doing all the sculpting and murdering 
And I think, and I think it, it, it also... Uh, All that sculpting and murdering like you do. Corman also has in mind, I think, when he wants to amp up the cinematic effects. You know, you can have some pretty plain shots that are moving you forward in the, in, in the plot, but then when he really wants to hit you with some bit of expressionism, he can. I mean, like that like that scene with the blonde that he brings back and she takes off her clothes and all that is done via shadow play mm-hmm. in the kitchen. Uh, that's very strikingly shot. And then shooting her the way he does from behind when she sits down and like all of that is very carefully planned out. The scene with the... Um, Buzzsaw for uh, were uh, not a velvet buzzsaw, but a buzzsaw. Mm. Um, you know, again, that, that is that is given a whole a lot of um, attention in terms of lighting and camera work and framing, and uh, like I think he has in mind to sort of make certain moments count in that respect, and so so that's when he's going to get you. Know, opening shot, for example, he's going to really grab you with that cinematically, and then he can kind of let other things be a little more simple. And both of those shots are really nice teases in terms of, you know, the B-movie double feature audience going for the exploitation and stuff that they want to see without getting graphic about it. Yeah. I mean, the, the closest we really get to something graphic in this movie is the actual bucket of blood, uh, which I think is hilarious because it, it kind of doesn't feel like it fits into the story. It does feel like they came up with the title first mm-hmm. and that midway through they were like, oh, where shoot we forgot a bucket of blood but at the same time you know he puts that bucket down and it's not immediately clear why and then he comes into the foreground and he's he's doing things in the foreground and you just start hearing the dripping noises and it's a pretty trenchant horror moment and there isn't even visible dripping while it's happening but as the scene plays out you're seeing more and more blood gathering like on the rim of this this background bucket as this sound effect plays and man it got me like not in a horror way not in a creepy way but just in a that's that's a really nice little bit of storytelling that you've got going on there in order to shoehorn your gory title into your observational story about the nature of art did you guys look at the poster for bucket of blood I've seen that, but what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Oh, it's, it's hilarious. It's uh, a series of Charles Adams-esque. Uh, it, I don't think it's actually Charles Adams. I couldn't find a credit for it. Oh, but right. But Charles Adams-like panels uh, depicting like people like vampires coming to see bucket of blood because they they're excited about it and like charles adams like creepy characters removing their heads during the show and people walking away from it saying all right well let's let's go have dinner but nothing with tomato sauce just this sort of (laughs) macabre idea that what you're going to see is so much bloodier and more gruesome and more creepy and more weird than it actually is (laughs) it just has a very william castle feel of like luring people people into the cinema for something and then kind of handing them art instead like you're here let's talk about the nature of art and the nature of creativity and the nature of talent uh, and also there's a bucket of blood oh yeah. i mean the, the film the film really just technically lives up to its title <laughs> uh it look i mean I, i'm showing you something that the listeners cannot see but i, I there's a poster here of just of this just gnar- gnarly, monstery looking face and a skull and a knife and a, you know none of that stuff. Very movie. stylized, like Lon Chaney Jr. Phantom of the Opera right. kind of face. Terror, horror, murder. Uh, yeah, some of that. <laughs> and also beatnik jokes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So 
finally, uh, hey, let's talk about art. Does this film come up with an answer as to what art is, and, and do Walter's sculptures fit the description? I'm going to say no on on Walter's art. I don't know. Art is Defining what art is is maybe difficult, but uh, mm-hmm. but I think slapping a bunch of clay over dead things is probably, <laughs> probably pretty low on the uh, scale of what is and isn't art. Yeah, I think part of his tragedy is he doesn't actually create anything. He just sort of slaps a layer of clay on top of it. But I don't know. It's I, realism. It's the new realism. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's the same, th- same thing. I'm not sure the film comes down firmly on the side of it's not being art. Tasha, what do you, what do you say? I think that... It, weirdly enough, it it all depends on intention, mm-hmm. and I think that he thinks he's trying to create art, but he actually he isn't communicating anything. He doesn't have a message. He doesn't have anything that he's trying to evoke in other people. He doesn't have anything that he's trying to say about the world. He is literally solely looking for the response. Yes, you are an artist. Yes, you can have some money. Yes, you can have some fame. And he like, he doesn't, The I, again, I'm just going to go back to the fact that he names his sculptures thing that this is, pretty much. I would say that these things could be art. I mean, we, we've got, we've got, absolutely got modern artists today working with dead animals and slivering them up and preserving them in formaldehyde or uh, plasticining them or what have you. And it's not really that different. You know, there's definitely artists working today who would say, oh, a dead cat, it's a found object. And I recontextualized it in order to say something about, you know, this is this is communicating about like the realm of life and death and like the liminal spaces around our experiences with animals. If there's intent there, I think it's art. If there's an intent intent to communicate something maybe whether it succeeds or not it's art but he's not trying to communicate anything he's he's literally trying to hear the words yes you are an artist hmm. okay uh, be a good thing for our listeners to to weigh in on so we'll look forward to some feedback on that that's probably all we had to say about a bucket of blood right now but speaking of feedback we'll have some of that after the break Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We got quite a bit of mail about several different episodes, so let's get into some of it. Scott, want to start us off with some Shyamalan talk? Oh, definitely. Ben, who is is a frequent, excellent uh, writer, he says, I just wanted to write in to defend Unbreakable's weirdly perfunctory, where are they now ending? While it'd be anticlimactic to conclude most superhero stories with text saying the, the hero reported his enemy to the cops, I think that anticlimax suits Unbreakable's particular story of a man torn between his ordinary family and a greater destiny. When Price reveals his true intentions to Dunn at the end, he's offering Dunn the fulfillment of a heroic fantasy, a chance to join Price's evil genius in a larger-than-life struggle that will realize their mutual potential. As Dunn recoils from Price, however... We realize he's rejecting the offer. The collateral damage of that epic struggle, which has already cost dozens of lives and would kill even more if it continued, would be too great. Where the ending postscript comes in is through this rejection. Since Price wants Dunn to fight him and turn both of them into legends, Dunn cannot attack or vow to bring Price to justice without giving his enemy what he wants. Any heroic steps against Price would just fulfill the comic book roles that both seem destined to play. As such, Dunn's only option is to defy his heroic role and do the ordinary thing, which is going to the cops. The anticlimactic ending of Dunn's battle with Price is therefore the means by which he beats Price. He escapes the superhero narrative by surrendering to obscurity, 
abandoning his destiny to become a mere afterthought in the conclusion of his own story. It might not be exciting, but ultimately it's the right move for Dunn and arguably the story as a whole. I think hmm. that's that's very convincing and, and would explain why uh, perhaps we did not see the need to see that character or or the movie Glass. Uh, so, but but I mean, like, just pretend the Glass didn't exist, though. Were you were you persuaded by the end of Unbreakable? You weren't on that podcast. I, I, I no, I wasn't. I I like the end of Unbreakable as an ending to the film, but I think just the staging of it is a little awkward. The way it's yeah. you know, and and the text is brought in at the end. And, yeah. yeah, it's a little it's a little bumpy. But uh, but you're, conceptually, you're it's interesting. You're ameliorating all of these things. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do my job and go further. No, it's bad. It's just bad. <laughs> it's bad. It's clunky. It's it's rotten. I think this is they, a really they, great. They, they called him Mr. Glass. Let's, let's, let's square up square up to Ben's argument here. Though. Why, no, why is, no. Why... I, I think that this is a really good argument for why there isn't uh, some sort of climactic fight scene or why there isn't some sort of like epic third, fourth act uh, where they, they fight and the collateral is all of humanity. And I'm fine with that. But all of these things that he's talking about could have still played out in a final scene that gave it some sort of narrative, that gave it some sort of sense of of stakes or weight, even if the the point of that weight was, I am deciding to not confront this and why. Like all of this could have played out in a way that actually executed those themes as opposed to abandoning them. And when we just do the the kind of freeze frame fifties cop show ending, you know, police story kind of. Uh, gag ending with some text over it to me it just it literally feels like they like they ran out of money and poochie went back to his home planet <laughs> now i'll say this when i saw it in the theater i was like huh <laughs> that, was, that was that was it but when i saw it the second time um on dvd and i knew when it was coming i liked it a lot better huh and i haven't seen it since then so maybe uh maybe now who knows who knows how i'd feel but i wasn't on that episode so i did not rewatch unbreakable I do like it, for the record. Yeah, I think I'm probably on the side of that. The staging of it is kind of what throws threw mm-hmm. me off in the titles at the end. I think that it just it really is a very clumsy way to get out of a movie that has just sprung this massive twist on us and is and is leaving us kind of reeling and uh, and um, it just it's, it's not a soft landing for that film. Yeah, there's no there's no digestion time for what is a pretty startling revelation, and we don't here. I, I guess my problem comes down to everything that Ben is saying speaks to things going on in David Dunn's head that we don't get to see play out, that we we don't get any confirmation that any of this is happening for him. And seeing him deal with that revelation would have given us some clue about how to deal with it. And instead, it's like he throws his hands up and is like, yeah. I, you know, abandoned plot, abandoned theme. And I mean, in, in what is unbreakable but digestion time? I mean, it's like a th- it's like a Thanksgiving dinner or something. You're digesting it for you know, all, the whole movie. You're di- you know, it's all digestion that film. So to to be abrupt suddenly, that didn't work. It's like somebody just yanking that Thanksgiving plate out and from under no, you. No, I'm saying after Thanksgiving, you're on the couch, you're digesting. <laughs> this, this metaphor, it's like it's like a graham cracker. <laughs> <laughs> what should be done with that graham cracker, Scott? It's got to be crumbled and uh, feed, that all feeds the artist or something. I'm not sure how it goes. All right. Well, let's move on to a, another film that we covered. Um, we also received some belated feedback from listener, Eisner winning journalist and friend of the show, Oliver Sava, about our Widows episode. Tasha, could you read that one? Absolutely. Oliver writes, this is a late one, but it's something that's stuck in my mind for a while. One thing that stuck out to me after repeated viewings of Widows is the theme of education. Veronica works for the teachers' union. Carlos 
Alice's mom laments how he never finished college because of Linda. Alice's mom uses college to tempt her into becoming an escort. Jatem is often shown reading and listening to tapes, which Genevieve suggested is tied to him making an escape from his current life. The Mannings use one of the city's many shut-down and abandoned schools as a stash house. Veronica gives her dirty money to her son's school for a new library. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how Widows uses education to inform other themes about self-actualization and taking ownership of your life. That's pretty good, Oliver. I mean, it's so well the theory, this assertion is so well supported by evidence that I'm not really sure what to add onto it, um, other than correct. Yeah, other than, <laughs> other, other than correct, and other than I guess the film presents all these obstacles to people of good intent that there are that there are people who could have businesses and could succeed and have great minds and are cut off from those uh, ambitions by by a system that plays against them particularly if they're people of color particularly if they're women yeah i i this was not a theme that i particularly saw but this is a very compelling argument it's a very compelling and and thorough list it kind of makes me want to go back and watch the movie again which by the way is just basically not a bad idea because it's a really really good film and it's really dense and there's a lot of things to pick out of it like this particular theme which seems pretty thorough and yet something i hadn't really seen yeah, he, it's like it's like he really, they took he and um, Gillian Flynn took that miniseries and just crammed it just, just elegantly, but just took a lot of material, uh, a lot of elements, and, and really made it work into a very dense whole. And Chicago it up too. Oh, I, mean, I love it. Yep. Elegant cramming of a dense hole, the Gillian Flynn story. <laughs> <laughs> I love also how... how <laughs> that is uh, very suggestive. Real-life news of, of very various aldermanic uh, um, and misadventures and, and uh, misjudgments and, and, uh, and stuff have, have only made that film uh, more relevant since it came oh, out. Yeah. But, we're, we're in the middle of some alderman races as we speak, or at least my, my ward is. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm, anyway, go ahead. We're, we're also in the middle of planning a heist that's going to steal <laughs> millions of dollars from one of those uh, aldermen, but we're not going to say said, which one. You've said the quiet part loud again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're pressed for time, but we also got a context-setting email about our pairing of Mean Girls and The Favorite with lots of great historical information that we'll share on our Facebook page. As always, we appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and recommendations. If you want us to feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion, uh, you can leave us a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll move to the far less grimy, if no less dangerous setting of modern day Southern California to discuss another movie about the meaning of art and its relationship to death, Velvet Buzzsaw. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, beware of busboys who say they want to sculpt you. Mm-hmm.